Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. By now, it should be clear to all observers that politicians, public health officials, nonprofit health groups, and the national media are joined in common cause to force Health Canada into abject retreat on vaping. The end game is a complete policy reversal on the regulations allowing adult access and choice to vaping products in Canada. But more than just a U-turn, opponents appear to be demanding from Health Canada an admission that the agency concerning the science on vaping got it wrong and miscalculated the health risks, the impacts of flavors on youth use, and the hazards of nicotine. The pressure campaign is in full swing behind the scenes in Ottawa and supported by legislatures and public health groups from across the country. It's fully out in the open now, propagated by activists in the media, such as Kelly Crow from the CBC and Carly Weeks at the Globe and Mail, to name just a few. In this edition of Reg Watch, we are joined by David Sweener, Ottawa lawyer and renowned tobacco control policy expert and harm reduction advocate. And we're going to dive right into the issues with David. David, thank you so much for joining us today on Reg Watch. Great to be with you again. So uh, I'm just wondering if there's the echo and it says no echo sounds perfect. Thank you, Wendy, for doing that. However, I've got one. So I'm hearing David double. David, uh, please, for our audience that is unfamiliar with you, quickly give them a little bit of background on yourself and your expertise when it comes to tobacco control and harm reduction. Sure, Brent. I, I got involved in this beginning in the 1980s. I was the first lawyer in the world to work full time on cigarette smoking and the carnage it causes. I was involved in setting precedents in Canada and globally on various things that, that played a huge role in, in reducing smoking in Canada by very you know, rationally looking at what are the problems we have, how do you go about dealing with it, measuring it, um, changing policies as, as we needed to. We set a lot of uh, great precedents. We reduced smoking uh, pretty dramatically, especially in the first few years. Uh, smoking among young people in Canada, 15 to 19 year olds, 42% were daily smokers when I got involved, got it down to 16% in less than a decade by doing rational things. Uh, I've been involved in suing tobacco companies over uh, misbehavior. I've uh, worked globally with uh, you know, international bodies on trying to get uh, good policies through. So I, I've continued to, uh, continue to, to do this sort of work because it's really important. And really important work it is indeed. And you've been on our show now uh, a couple of times. In fact, you were the third guest we've ever had on Reg Watch, and that was back in the first uh, first days of 2016 or just the end of 2015, and it was a piece called Dragon Slayers. And we had you on because we wanted to gain some insight on what was motivating these people. At the time, I didn't have a, a really good sense of who they were, um, but they felt like, they felt uh, abstinence only, you know, paternalistic kind of thing. But yeah, I wouldn't have been able to put the same bite as I can on it now. Describe the enemy that is the Dragon Slayer. Sure. I mean, the uh, cigarette companies behaved in, in a totally abysmal way for a long time. Uh, and they were the establishment. So they're the ones that uh, it was a real challenge to try to take them on. Uh, there were no resources available for people to uh, to go out and, and battle these companies, uh, you know, tr try to uh, control what they were doing, try try to uh, uh, achieve justice. And 
So what happens when you, you've got you know, a real bad player out there? They're really acting like a dragon, you know, the dragon that's destroying the, uh, the village. And dragons attract dragon fighters, people who say, I can do this, I can fight evil, I can slay the dragon. It, it's, a, it's a normal response. Uh, the problem is you, you get into this demonization of an enemy and you start seeing enemies in a lot of places where you didn't even have enemies. Lots of other dragons seem to come up. Uh, and you're, you're on this moral quest. It's an absolutist quest. You're out to destroy that dragon. Uh, and any tactic is, is quite acceptable as long as you're doing that. And that's you know, what we've seen in the history of uh, witch hunts and heretic trials. Uh, you know, we've, we've seen this act out various times. And it's never played out well. Uh, because you, you end up with, well, uh, uh, the nature of the problem with witch hunts is that they're witch hunts. Uh, you know, we, rationality leaves. Uh, people think they're on some sort of moral quest. They're fighting evil. Uh, and we've seen through history that an awful lot of harm is done by that because of, of all the, the innocent bystanders who get sideswiped, whether it be people caught up in McCarthyism uh, the, the number of people were burnt at the stake because of uh, perceived uh, uh, religious view or that they were seen as being a witch. Uh, we've seen it with the war on drugs of people incarcerated uh, for uh, nonviolent offenses. Uh, we've seen the racism involved in things like that. We had a war on, uh, on uh, alcohol, what became known as prohibition. It was really just dragon slayers. Uh, they moved on to a war on drugs. Uh, the war on alcohol was a disaster. The war on uh, drugs has been a catastrophe. And now people think, well, why stop there? We'll just move on to a war on nicotine. So um, it sounds like to me that you're basically making the argument that these are the same people. Maybe not the exact same people, but in some cases they are, but the same type of people. Yeah, I mean, if, if we look at, there's actually very good work done on this, Brent, uh, and I'd recommend uh, people like Lisa McGurr's wonderful uh, book, The War on Alcohol, saying that prohibition wasn't this, you know, odd thing that people did, it was stupid, and therefore it was abandoned. So it came from a key part, particularly of U.S. culture, of how do you use the power of the state to impose your moral views on the behavior of others? Oh, did we lose you there, David? I'm uh, I'm still on, but uh, I can hear you. I'm not seeing you now. Okay, uh, I think what might have happened there is, is is fine. I think it was just a, a, a miss uh, miss cue on my part, uh, thinking when you were finishing. So there you go. Got it. All right. Okay, there we go. Okay, so uh, we're going to jump into this real fast here. Now, for our viewers that are in the U.S., it's really important that they understand some things that are going on in Canada because um, things are operating a bit differently here and they could really go downhill here even faster than in the U.S. because in the U.S., because there's so many states uh, and there's different branches of government that are all involved here, sure, the president could sign something. Yes, FDA can come in with, the, with PMTA ruling, but we see how hard it's been for, for FDA to get that PMTA thing through. I mean, it's just such a mess. It's such a mess that eventually some judge is going to step in and go, I mean, this is just completely not proper regulatory procedure and just throw it all out, right? I mean, at some point, you can't 
just keep jumping back and forth and all these different dates and oh god it's here and then all of a sudden you've got national bands and then now you don't and then it's just it's a nightmare and some at some point there'll be some sense making there but in canada it's legal and it's all under the regulatory framework of uh health canada and health canada has the full authority within that huge amount of powers that they have and they have a lot of powers and they're happy to tell you about it right they can institute uh, a ton of different kinds of restrictions. They could revoke access and so forth. And it sure looks like the political pressure on uh, Health Canada is you know, turned up to full steam. What's your thought on that? Yeah, they're, they're being bullied. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's really very disturbing to see it, Brent, because what we've got are um, uh, the, these... The efforts that, that go against the very things that have uh, have been the, the underpinnings for an effective liberal democracy. Uh, you've got media that's acting like tabloid journalism, uh, incredibly biased coverage, no, no even effort to think about balance, let alone give balance. So they've given carte blanche to abstinence-only people, they're handing out misinformation. They're missing the point of what's this really about? Like what we're dealing with, and we've talked about it on your program before, is actually really, really important. This isn't a game for people to play with over whatever their moral quests are. We're dealing with something that's killing 20,000 people a day globally, cigarette smoking. We're dealing with something that's killing, what, about 40,000 Canadians this year. Over 100 Canadians today will die because of cigarette smoking. Cigarettes are an incredibly deadly delivery system, an incredibly toxic way to get nicotine, which itself has very few risks. And this has been known since the 1970s. And what we've done is had people totally lose sight of what the goal should be, which is the reduction of death and disease. They are focusing on an abstinence-only agenda. They are looking at pressuring government into doing things that, that would be incredibly counterproductive, that are protecting the cigarette companies. Uh, they, they've just sort of, they've lost the game. And this is totally uh, infuriating and completely expected because this often happens with new technology, that people panic, they get all upset about the new thing and all worried about that, and they lose sight of What's the alternative? What's the thing it's going to replace? So we, we went through it with people freaking out about refrigerators or about bicycles. We've seen it with people freaking out about auto safety features. It's right. just now it's like the, the, the nut bars are, 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 are getting most of the, uh, the, the wattage. They're the ones that, that people are, are hearing and it's scaring people. We, we can see the number of vapors who are going back to cigarettes. They've been scared out of the low risk product right back into the clutches of the thing that kills them. So let's obviously uh, talk about that. But, you know, we did have this exchange on email on that issue. And we, we've we talked about this on the show many times. I mean, yep. this is, you know, fourth time you've been on the show in the four years that we've been covering this issue. And I just don't believe that it's a, a fear of technology issue. I, and, and with all due respect, I think that's just an easy way out. I think you're giving all the people that you know personally that are involved in trying to kill the vaping industry, because, of course, you've got colleagues and stuff in tobacco control and public health and that you, you respect. You've told me that. You certainly do, right? Those people are are deliberately trying to harm people, and if and and if they are going to be given any leeway for 
uh, acting subconsciously, it's certainly not for the fear of technology. Because, no. because they see it all as just nicotine. Nicotine's the problem. And all of the other stuff is technology to deliver it. I, I, think we have, I think that every single person in public health that is participating in this hysteria has abdicated any ounce that they could say that they're in this for any kind of health effects at all. Even while we're, we're trying to protect the children. <laughs> I mean, let's find out what you think on that. I, I, I don't even think that they're trying to protect the children is really about health. Uh, this is about control. Well, th th this might sound trite or old-fashioned, Brent, but truth matters. Uh, and when people put an ideology above facts, above science, above humanism, uh, that's worrisome. I mean, the, the principles that allowed us to accomplish so much in terms of uh, dealing with, with risk, you know, why is it we've managed to dramatically reduce the, the risks of uh, our food supply, our water supply, uh, the use of automobiles, of airplanes, uh, buildings are less likely to burn down, fall over. We use principles of the enlightenment. We use reason. Uh, we, we, we sought truth. Uh, we use the best science possible. And what we're seeing now, and, you know, and I'm, there, there's many people commenting on it, is the death of truth. People putting ideology ahead you know, choosing their own facts, uh, misleading people for whatever reasons that they've got. So there are ideologies in play here, Brent. Uh, I find it disturbing, but we've always known in, in this field that about half the people, and we, we talked about this back in the 80s and 90s, about half the people attracted to doing tobacco control were actually not public health oriented. They were moralists. They were prohibitionists. Right. Uh, and it's just... They, they are getting a lot of voice right now, and they are dragon slayers. You know, they're on a quest. They really think they're doing the right thing. They're doing God's work. They're going to get rid of this terrible drug, or they think that they're attacking the, the cigarette companies or tobacco companies or vaping companies or capitalism, and they're losing sight of the, the human beings who are really at issue here. Right. Well, if you're a collectivist thinker in nature, you don't really care about individuals. You know, that's just the way it works, right? You, you know, progressives look at the whole issue. They'll accept individuals as a part of society, but they believe that society comes prior to the individual. And if you believe that society is prior to the individual, then it leaves a whole host of room to make rules and decisions and so forth for the good of the common weal as opposed to the good of the individual. And you shouldn't, a government and a collective shouldn't be making decisions that are based on the good of an individual either. Individuals are supposed to make those decisions <laughs> for themselves. Yeah, well, you're, um, uh, you're talking a lot about what we saw with, with people like Stalin and, and his idea of re remaking mankind. Uh, I don't really know the, the full motivations of some of the people who are doing this, in part because they, they're they're not only feeling that they, they, they have to go out and slay this dragon, they refuse to talk about it. So if I say, you know, what you're doing looks to me to be really counterproductive. Let me show you some evidence on that. Let's talk about it. Yeah, heck, maybe I'm wrong and you're right. Like, let, let's sit down and talk. That's what the Enlightenment's all about. That's what science is supposed to do. That's how we come up with better policy. And the answer is no, I will not talk about it. It's, it's acting like they're members of a cult. Uh, and these are people I've known for a long time. I mean, decades in some cases. And this 
sort of it's, it's an abrogation of what should be their responsibility to to society. I mean, they're in a position where they can influence things. There are literally lives in their hands and they choose to do something that I think is objectively counterproductive if what they're trying to do is save lives. They're misleading people. There is no ethical basis for misleading people, for, for telling lies. And, and yet they won't even talk about it. And they're shaping policy. They've got the ears of, you know, journalists who should know better. You know, this combination of, of, of activists who haven't really thought through what they're doing, as far as I can tell, or they're doing it for some unjustifiable reason, dealing with reporters who have forgotten how to be journalists. They're, they're not looking for balance. They're not questioning. They're, they're putting out incredibly biased information that to the extent that the public still believes this media has credibility is going to result in deaths. So I've just thrown up here uh, the CBC uh, series, and this yeah. is very concerning. What we have here is the nation's public broadcaster, funded by taxpayers, funded by vapors, um, too as well, have launched uh, the Vape Fail series. Now, this right. is obviously after now what has been almost 24 straight months of, of sheer one-sided propaganda, starting with, you know, uh, the epidemic uh, and everything prior. But really, if we want to just look at the last 18, you know, 12 months to 18 months, that kind of thing, it's just been absolutely incessant. And here, um, Kelly Crow, um, this is the kickoff here with Mark Harrison, but this is a Kelly Crow uh, kind of branded um, series, and it's called Vape Fail. Um, the hope of vaping as a safer alternative to smoking is fading. We explore why. What does that say to you, that headline of this intro? Uh, we need better journalism schools, apparently, and somebody needs to remind the CBC that uh, they've got social obligations. Uh, they're not a propaganda tool. They're supposed to be informing Canadians, not misleading Canadians. Uh, balance is actually really important. So, yeah. Feel free to go out and interview people who have an abstinence-only view or misinterpret or, or, or misstate the science or just have a different view of the science. But for heaven's sakes, talk to the other people, the people who have actually done more of the research, the people who have spent more time looking at this, the people who can put that into perspective. Because don't you owe it to the Canadian public to do something like that? Like the pressure they're trying to put on Health Canada to do dumb stuff when Health Canada's task was a very important uh, uh, job. I mean, they're, they're supposed to be trying to protect the health of Canadians. And you get this broadside of misinformation and fear-mongering, you know, quoting a lot of people who, whose work has, has been thoroughly disputed by, by reputable uh, people with, without even going to the reputable people to ask. You, you have people who are attacking things out of, say, Public Health England, have they asked anybody in Public Health England how do they respond? Have they asked anybody at the Royal College of Physicians, the British Medical Association, Cancer Research UK, Action on Smoking and Health in the UK? Not at all. They, they just do these attacks. So, you know, it is, it's a huge concern because media is so important for a functioning democracy to have faith that we're getting valid information. And we've seen, as uh, Robert Reich was talking about in The Guardian yesterday and recent Pew research out of the U.S., the faith in media has crashed.
from a time in the 1970s where over 70% of Americans, at least, believed that they could trust the media very much to about 18% now. So it's not just the media, though, however, just to add, because I'd like to direct you to specifically talk about the CDC, the Centers for Disease Disease Control in the U.S., you've gone... You know, worldwide, that, that this particular regulator leads worldwide. Yeah. How would you characterize its truthiness with regards to uh, confounding uh, illicit THC uh, uh, vaping with uh, nicotine vaping? There, there are too many really bright, highly educated people at the CDC to merely say they're stupid. It's worse than that, Ram. Uh, you know, they, they have been anti-e-cigarette. They have been anti any alternative to, to cigarettes. Uh, they have put out tremendous propaganda about Swedish snus, about uh, moist snuff, products that are undoubtedly much less hazardous than cigarettes. You will not find them saying anything about relative risk on these products. They're just scaring people. They've been doing it for a long time. And again, they were charged with a really important task in trying to protect the health of Americans and they've abandoned that for whatever ideological reasons they have and pursuit of this tobacco-free world is an abstinence-only agenda. And again, we need credible institutions of government if a democracy is going to survive. The sort of stuff Timothy uh, Snyder writes about in The Road to Unfreedom. You know, how do we move into autocracy? How do we lose our democracies? Well, when the public no longer believes government, they no longer trust government agencies because those agencies have destroyed that trust. And that's, and that's where what's I think, And that's exactly it, David. And I just let me propose that it's always described as that after part when it's because when the public has lost trust and, the, and then you describe some of the reasons why they've lost trust. It always starts with bureaucrats and people in power seeking more power. And as they seek more power, they crush, they take away liberty, it chips away at it, it they chip away at truth. So it actually, it, it, it's not, it, we always like, like to think that somehow it's just happened and we've lost the trust and that the loss of trust is what creates the vacuum that then creates the, the room for the autocrat to step in. No, human beings have a natural propensity to want to control and be autocrats. And so, and so I, I put this out at you, is mm-hmm. that the people that are in the abstinence-only camp, they deny human nature. And in that denial of human nature is what gets us in this position where it's everybody else's fault, right? When I mean that it's the vapors, it's the vaping, it's the vape device, it's big tobacco, it's capitalism, it's the free market, it's the flavors, you know, it's the gun argument. Right. Mm -hmm. The guns are bad. Get rid of the guns and nobody will kill each other. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. Human beings have a great propensity to do evil and they will do evil. And as much as you want to mold and change them and make them into better men, it's it's a disaster. And so their huge passion to protect the kids, abstinence only is inseparable from saving the children. If you go all the way back through. The abstinence only thing, it, it's, it's always connected to the children. And connected to the children is always post Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and it's always about get the children, inoculate the, ch- you know, inoculate the children, indoctrinate the children, you know, separate them from the family, teach them exactly your way, and, and they will become the new generation, which will take you to the promise, progressive promised land. Well, 
Uh, I mean, we can have a very good uh, philosophical discussion about this. I mean, I, I think, I mean, heck, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I've, I've, I've been involved in, in trying to get effective regulation uh, that, that, you know, c creates a better society. And we've got lots of examples of it, Brent, so that I think if you have appropriate regulatory oversight, uh, if, if we have reasonable legislatures who are, uh, uh, are, are passing laws that, that make sense, that that meet market needs, that, that work with human nature. I mean, look what we did with laws on sanitary food, on science-based pharmaceutical products. You know, look what we managed to accomplish with things like auto safety. We've reduced the, the death rate per mile driven by over 80% since the time I was a teenager. Uh, you know, that, that's amazing. And regulation, regulatory bodies played a huge role in that. Where they lose out, in my view, is when they overstep these the basic rules of rationality. When they start saying things that are not true, but might be comforting to them for some sort of ideological reason. And I also think that they probably could get away with this more readily decades ago, uh, where people had a lot of faith in them and, and maybe they, they did behave better. I, I think they did. But you cannot get away with misinformation in the age of the Internet. So when the CDC tries to, to convince people that the recent outbreak of acute lung infections was because of vaping nicotine products, like legitimate nicotine products, and they cause tremendous confusion on that. It doesn't take long for people like, say, Professor Michael Siegel to point out this is nonsense. And you can look at the facts and you can say, Siegel's right, CDC's wrong. And then that gets passed around through social media. And then that feeds all those other people who want to attack government, who want to attack the CDC, because they've given up that credibility high ground. They've decided to abandon truth in, for some other reason. So whether they're, it's their internal autocrat speaking, they've done something that's undermined the credibility of the institution they're working for, and when you do that, it isn't that people just say, I don't believe the CDC anymore when they talk about vaping. People say, I don't believe the CDC or I don't trust government. I don't trust government institutions. And where are we when, when we allow things like that to happen, when people overstep what they should be doing to create a situation where those who are opposed to the, the institutions that underpin a democracy can now say, see, see, I told you that these people are doing these terrible things and that's why, you know, democracy is bad. The, the whole Putin, nothing is real uh, approach, that you want people to question everything, to see no reality out there. And that makes room for a strong man to come in or it, it just undermines our ability as a society to collectively move ahead on things that can make life better. So, um, well, well put, well put. So let's dive out of the philosophy for as, as much as we can. I've got a bunch of great things for us to be talking about here. First of all, I want to make sure that we don't uh, miss going into Kelly Crow's piece. This is the start uh, of the uh, vape fail. That was just an introduction. This is the real meat, the road to vaping. Yep. Less than two years ago, the federal government officially welcomed the vaping industry to Canada. The belief among policymakers and public health experts was that e-cigarettes were safer than combustible cigarettes and would help smokers kick their habit. That's not what happened. And so let me just provide some thoughts on here. First of all, 
this is the framing of the argument that uh, RegWatch has been saying since early September. In early September, we made the point that there's the one way this is going, they're going to attack all of the foundational science that's involved, which they've done. Bloomberg came out with a piece within a week or so, maybe a couple couple of days, actually. They might have, actually, it was a couple of days. It was on a Friday, a few days mm -hmm. after September 11th, when the president had come out with his uh, proposed vape ban at the time. And Bloomberg was right ready. It was a 5,000-word piece that attacked every bit of the foundational science, PHC, RCP, Dr. Rodu in the, in the States. I'm sure, David, you were mentioned in it. <laughs> and one of the key things about this article was that they went, they, the whole framing of it was that um, we missed it. The, the whole framing was that um, public health missed a whole bunch of examples of these lung illnesses that were happening years ago. Ten right. years ago, we found lung illnesses that happened in Europe, one in Hawaii, like this and that. So just digging it all up. The whole concept being is that it's not just this one illness, because they knew it was a pretext, of course, but it's not just this one illness. It's everything is wrong. There has been mistakes made by public health. And they and to me, it very worrisome is is going after these key scientists and researchers that have already had their neck stuck out for many years that have been on this one side of the public health divide debate, right? Uh, a hammer on them like that during the course of lung illness and this hysteria, you know, just exploding like it did, that could cause a lot of damage. Sooner or later, the last five scientists that are willing to stand up and defend vaping become one. And then after that, it's become zero. And that's how the conversation gets killed. Ask any any scientist that's got a different opinion on climate change besides, you know, we're burning up in hell in 12 years, you know, they're ostracized and kicked out. I mean, that's done. So to anybody who think that, that this, you know, the complete total destruction of another side of a uh, scientific point of view on vaping could never happen because the truth of vaping is just so clear and everyone knows it. Sooner or later, public health will figure it out. No. No, not when everything's, you know, you know, set up against it. So that's that's key here with Kelly Crow's piece. And this is how she's starting it. And it's with a lie. Right. The yes. first thing. Yeah, it's a lie. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you when you don't do real journalism. I mean, the idea of getting another view of something. And you know, I think, you know, if I called Kelly Crow and said, I just found out Mars is going to crash into Earth next Tuesday. You know, I would think she'd probably go and ask somebody else whether Sweeney's right on this. Rather yeah, than but, just Dave, but David, I think, you're, I think you're looking at this in a, in a pre-totalitarian outlook. The pre-totalitarian outlook is going, she's not being a very good journalist. A public health advocate that's trying to kill vaping looks at that and goes, she's being an excellent journalist. Well, she's being an excellent propagandist. But that's if you look right. at what, what's the role of the CBC, should they be doing that? You read right. that and say... So she's saying people said it was safer, and it turns out that's not true? Well, I mean, to, to claim that vaping is not safer than smoking cigarettes, you know, is like saying, no, Mars is going to crash into the Earth tomorrow. I mean, it's nonsense. You know, it's just anybody who's got even a really basic grasp of the science can figure this out. And we need to repeat, I mean, some of the people who are, are pushing this nonsense worked doing things to reduce cigarette smoking in the past. They need to remember why. 
you know, how many people die from cigarette smoking and why? You know, such a huge number of people that it will kill between half and two thirds of long term smokers because of the inhalation of smoke. And and this is something that's been perpetuated by, by an industry and by the people who have been protecting that industry. And the abstinence only people protect the cigarette industry. You know, why would we want to do that? Why would they want to do that? Don't they have any social networks? Are, are, they must know people who have died from cigarette smoking. Have they never sat there in a hospice holding the hand of somebody who's dying at age 49 because of their cigarette smoking? You know, how, how could they do that and still think this is, this is an ideological quest or that it's okay to distort things? Or I, if I can force Health Canada to do something that goes against the interest of Canadians, that long term will be seen as way worse than the blood scandal, but I win. That's what I want to do. I mean, that is really, I mean, Brent, when, when we start getting that sort of stuff happening, you know, by people who should be doing public health, that's a huge problem. When we've got media that doesn't want to get balance, they want scare stories, they want clicks, they, they, I mean, we're destroying the faith in these people. And we've seen where that takes politics in general, when people stop believing the, the people that that actually should have been telling them the truth, should have been informing rather than deceiving them. So, I mean, I agree with all that. I'm just, I'm just like 10 steps over the line now. <laughs> I've been in journalism for 30 years and I've got a master's degree essentially in postmodernism. Where I've, I've watched what's happening here and I don't, I don't agree. I think it's an out to say that, oh, they're just, you know, for one, resources are scarce in the newsroom so they can't do good reporting no. to the business model of media and mainstream media is broken and so they just need scare stories and clicks just, you know so it's a commercial argument all of these are leftist yep. progressive old school arguments designed yep. to get so, to get you to not look they are being Brent, those, those, being ideologues she's writing those, exactly yeah. what she's writing exactly what she wants and she's yep. writing exactly what the ideology wants and she's writing exactly what her readers want and her readers want they're out for blood and in well we don't know what the readers think i mean i'm one of those readers um i might have been spitting blood i wasn't out for it uh, i think if she was a blogger she can do that if she wants you know writing in her basement when she's working for the canadian broadcasting corporation you know, funded by taxpayers with a lot of money to try to inform Canadians. What she did is just simply wrong. Uh, and to the extent that she succeeds in creating more fear, we see what I'm seeing now in looking at the data. We're seeing a resurgence in smoking as people who had switched to vaping are switching back to cigarettes because they've been scared. And they've been scared because of that sort of tabloid journalism and if it was coming from a blogger, I'd still be upset. When it comes from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation or the Globe and Mail, that is really disturbing. Those used to be really credible news sources. I think they still are on a lot of, I'm a fan of both of them. And I, you know, I, I'm a, a reader, a follower, but it really disturbs me to be seeing some of that coverage and, and, and thinking, well, yeah, maybe I know enough nuance on this to say, I know they're misleading me on some stuff and I can ignore that, but I'll trust them on other things. Can yeah. we expect the public to say that? No, as you start to learn that you know what they're doing is is misleading, it's 
it's it's simply factually incorrect it's it's not balanced and to the extent that it's believed it's going to cause harm that looks more like a fraud than than good journalism. I agree. And I mean, I think fraud's a good word to use. And, you know, I get hot under the collar only because, you know, I have to voice what my viewers are thinking. I have to put that out there in, in terms of words because they're furious. And and are the viewers and vapors that are out there, the things that I read uh, on comments on RegWatch videos, I tell you, man, people are getting more upset by the second. And with what the CBC is doing here, this is at a time, right, at, right at, you know, first week of December, during all of this mass, they could have taken a break on this issue, right? And well, by they could have given it some balance. They, they could have said, how about we actually look at what's happened in the sales of cigarettes and the yeah. number of smokers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're, 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 yeah, you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. In. you're in Let's utopia world. That's utopia world, expecting yeah. well, that they're going to do it, that. Well, it, I it, want it, them to it, stop it, writing about vaping. Yeah, Just it, stop well, writing. It, yeah, I see. I'm I'm into these like old-fashioned ideas of like truth and justice. And, yeah, same. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I'm not. I don't think. I don't think they can it be trusted. It seemed to work really well when we pursued them, Brent, and yeah, and I, I don't don't think we should give them up that easily. I I hear you. I hear you. But I. It's just that. It's just that. It's much. I think it's much better to be call, be saying. Can you take a frickin' break <laughs> for a while instead of getting them to to try to change what they're doing because. I, they clearly are incapable of bringing any perspective of fairness to this issue. And the only organization that could lead the CBC into taking fairness on the issue is Health Canada. There's no other organization in the country. Yeah. We, we, really, we have to count on Health Canada and the Minister of Health to be able to stand up in the face of what's really, you know, call it what it is, it's bullying. Uh, it's trying to force them to do something that's not in the interest of Canadians. And I've got great sympathy for the people at Health Canada who are trying to adhere to the science. They're trying to look at facts. They're looking at what's happening with consumers. They're doing research to find out how can we improve the, the, the legislation we've got? How do we deal with the, the regulatory powers that, that, that we've been granted in order to try to refine this to reduce the risks that are associated with any new product while getting the benefits, getting rid of cigarettes. Uh, so there's this tremendous opportunity and it's gotta be heartbreaking for them to see all this pressure for them to abandon that. You know, it's really like, uh, you know, early in the days of auto safety, if the CBC or the Globe and Mail was just running stories about children who were killed in cars that had seat belts or that cars with crumpled zones or collapsing steering columns or safety glass. And look, the children, they're dead. They're dead, Brent. They're dead. And would we have abandoned auto safety? You know, would we have said children died in a pool with water that had been purified? It, it, it didn't have pathogens in it. And, and they drowned. We need to stop purifying water, for heaven's sakes. I mean, we need to have rational discussion. We need to look at risks and benefits. We need to actually consider facts. And when you have people talking about all the, the downsides they see on vaping, and with any new technology, anything, there, there's going to be downsides. We've got to measure them, look at what we're accomplishing, and look at how do we control for any unintended consequences. You don't simply throw it out when you know what the alternative is. 
because the alternative is that 100 deaths a day from cigarette smoking. It's some of the most disadvantaged people in Canada, people who have, you know, are, are ostracized, they're, they're discriminated against for using a product that in many cases they're not going to be able to stop using, nicotine. We've got good science on that. But it's not the nicotine that's killing them, it's the delivery system. And right. to try to, to force them to say, but if you're going to use this drug, the only way you're allowed to get it is in a way that's going to kill you. So should we take the same approach to coffee to say, my God, from now on, it has to be radioactive. Unless, you know, we'll only allow radioactive coffee. So Brent, if you're going to drink a coffee, that's eventually going to kill you and you better stop. I mean, that, that's, that, where's the humanism? Where's the logic? Where's, what happened to rationality? What happened to good policy? What happened to basic public health principles of where we find a risk, we seek to reduce it? When we're dealing with people, we meet them where they are. We recognize people have foibles. We're trying to prevent whatever they're doing from causing harm to them and others. We have an extraordinary ability to do that on nicotine, and we've got people who are trying to prevent that from happening. We've got people thinking that by attacking vaping, they're attacking cigarette companies, and if they had any understanding at all of the industry, and I've spent my career studying them, there's no way they could hold to a view like that. They've been doing things that have been incredibly protective of the cigarette industry. They, you know, they, they, this is a classic bootleggers and Baptists uh, a problem where and we're seeing it globally. Anti-tobacco people who are killing off the alternatives to cigarettes and cigarette companies are doing really well by it. Vaping comes in. There were all these efforts to ban it right away. They didn't manage to do that. Once that hit and we saw that people could move to a, a, an a, alternative product that was acceptable to a lot of smokers, the technology was improving, the whole business model, the, the cigarette cartel started to crumble, and the big global cigarette companies lost about half their market value, over $300 billion in a couple of years, because uh, largely because of vaping, largely because the idea that they're not going to be able to hold on to this technology. They're like people owning taxi medallions in New York City when Uber comes in. You know, the, the, the lucrative nature of the cigarette cartel was being destroyed. And now what we're seeing is those cigarette stock prices starting to go back up because... Sure. We're, we're mean, now, it's, it's, it's so confusing, though. I've got to tell you, it just gets way too confusing. It's abstinence only that's driving them. Uh, it's the Save the Kids that's driving them. It's pharma that's driving them. It's tobacco that's driving them. They want to protect tobacco. I mean, why don't we just start calling these people bad people? Because... <laughs> well, I mean, they, they may not be bad, Brent. They might just be not very bright. Uh, they might be, you know, misinformed. They might be closed-minded. But bad will work. It's, it's, it's a shorter word. We, we can go with that. Yeah, because, I mean, sooner or later, we have to, uh, you know, can't stop making excuses for these people. These people are supposed to be making good decisions on behalf of the people they represent, whether that's politicians, whether that's the bureaucrats that have been granted authority on behalf of the people to make decisions to help govern us and tell us how to live. I mean, if we, you know, if we bequeath our individual rights to the government uh, in order that we give up some of that liberty so we can share space with the people around us and create a good society, which everybody wants, I would imagine, to some degree. Um, if we do that, you know, the tr that is the trust. The bureaucrat, the regulator, 
um, may seem that they're unaccountable, but they aren't unaccountable. They, they in the yeah. end, their job uh, may be unaccountable, but morally, they're accountable. Yeah. How, how, how do we start to, well, how do we rebuild trust in government institutions when it's crumbling? First, and, and pi first pitchforks. First pitchforks. Yeah. <laughs> Starts with pitchforks. Well, I mean, a, a really good example of this is C. Everett Koop, the former Surgeon General of the United States at the time of uh, the emergence of the, the AIDS epidemic. And Dr. Koop was, was a social conservative. He had very, very strong religious views. And they were very much at odds with the behaviors that were associated with, with uh, causing HIV AIDS. And Dr. Koop could think that through and say, I need to speak out. I need to tell people what they can do to reduce the risk. I need to talk about things like clean needles. I need to talk about things like condoms because it's the right thing to do. Right. He could work that out. But and the thing is, I, though, is he was, in, let me just interrupt because I'm mindful of the time. And I and if we get too far down on Coop, I'm going to have to bring up all <laughs> of the things he said about cigarettes. He yeah. <laughs> was so wildly an abstinence-only guy. He right. defined what it, what it means uh, to be a lunatic, anti-smoking guy. Well, I... I yeah, in, in, in defense of uh, Dr. Koop, who I, I, I did, did have the, the, the honor of having some time with, those who know him best say that if he was around now, he would get this. Uh, he understood the idea of reducing risk. Uh, he understood the, the importance of telling the truth to consumers. Uh, I, I think that that's what we need is that sort of leadership now. It should be coming from NGOs uh, it's coming from some of them. They're just not getting voice in uh, in some of the media. Uh, I think we do have honorable scientific people at Health Canada who want to do the right thing. You know, they can see the facts. They're trying to do it, but they're dealing with this political firestorm that's being created with all this panic and the feeling that somebody's got to do something. Uh, and this is no different than what we saw in what caused the war on drugs. If you've seen... The, uh, the documentary Reefer Madness about uh, marijuana, we're, we're watching it all over again. We need to, to, to have that, the, the ability to think policy through and do good policy rather than have a panic. We right. need to do something that actually addresses the problem we're trying to address. We don't point to something and say, this is a reason why we have to ban everything. You know, some people are harmed by an illicit THC product, and the way we're going to deal with that is force all of the uh, illicit uh, nicotine products onto the illegal market. Okay, I mean, so you're, David, you're talking sense, and, and I want us <laughs> to explore that uh, and how we actually talk sense then to the people who need some sense talking to. First, though, before we do that, I'd like to make sure that we point out to everybody to go to regulatorwatch.com, support.regulatorwatch.com. This is how you guys can help us Take the fight to the people that need some fighting too, or at least a good talking to, which I at least try to do. I wave my fingers a lot at people, but there you go. Mm. So it's support.regulatorwatch.com. And uh, obviously, um, we'll throw your logo up here if, uh, if you can help us out enough, which we hope you can. Uh, Flavor Art, of course, longtime supporter. My God, we wouldn't be on the air without him. And Demand Vape, John Glauser from the U.S., They've stepped in here, and uh, they're going to be with us for a while, these guys. I'm so happy that John Glauser and Demand Vape and Juno came on board. Stealth, 
from up here in Canada, Mark and the crew, everybody at Stealth's fantastic. And I need to mention that, uh, oh, where's the logo? Ah, yes, yes, yes. Uh, yes, I got it up, Buffalo Vapor Lounge. John, Buffalo Vapor Lounge, fantastic. John Bola, Bola, um, I believe, that's correct. And hopefully, actually, we're gonna get him on to talk a bit about what's going on in New York, because I'm very concerned about New York State, as well as so many others. And then, of course, here are our monthly rock stars. We've got room for two more here. And then our brands that supported us legacy-wise over the years. Can't thank them enough. Keep thanking them. And, of course, the individual donors will get up here. I just finally cleaned my email box after three months. So finally got some time to do that. So support.regulatorwatch.com. Kick in a few dollars, 5, 10, 15, 100, something like that, whatever. Go to the homepage, figure it out, and thank you so very much. Now, um, David, I'd like to ask you, explain to our audience who Physicians for Smoke-Free Canada is. Uh, well, they, they had ceased operation recently, I think. I, I think they've, they've started up po possibly with some funding from Health Canada, but I think it's just a couple of old friends of mine who are uh, are running the, uh, the organization now. And so what, like, Okay, a couple old friends. Like, what does that mean? Who, like, uh, people who uh, probably don't have something better to do with their time and aren't willing to have anybody question what they're doing and seem to enjoy uh, sending out uh, abstinence only tracks. Uh, they're not doctors. Uh, I think they're, they're, they're at least at one point they're well meaning. At least one of them I thought had uh, good strategic sense at uh, one point in time. Uh, but if they're not willing to talk about what they're doing now, it's really hard to uh, to understand, you know, what's up and why would they behave in the way that they are. Uh, I mean, I think we did, should demand better. And indeed, if they've got Health Canada money and they're engaging in propaganda rather than facts, I think that's a problem. Health Canada money supporting these this group? Yeah. Well, uh, that's traditionally where they were getting their uh, their money. I I'm not sure. I think they they got more money out of Health Canada, but I. I'm not somebody who has to worry very much about uh, money and therefore I don't pay much attention to where other people get it. So that's very concerning because they have really been active over the last uh, six, seven, eight weeks during this during the scare. You could see they jumped up because I used to get stuff from them all the time years ago and even maybe just two yeah. years ago maybe. But yes, they went completely went quiet. And then just about a quarter of the way through this hysteria, all of a sudden they popped up. My emails were, I mean, it's only been since late October, early November that I started getting emails from them again. So they literally just started again. So if Health Canada is funding this, Health Canada is funding the propaganda. Yeah, I, th I think it was, uh, was it Ivan Illich who said the nature of institutions is they almost invariably end up doing exactly the opposite of what they were set up to do. Uh, Physicians for Smoke-Free Canada actually did some quite good stuff back in the uh, back in the 80s when we were uh, working to, to set some of the precedents in Canada. Um, I think it's drifted, uh, but you know if they're not willing to uh, to sit down and talk about what they're doing or try to give some justification for it, uh, you know that that's a problem. That that's not the way you develop good policy. Uh, I think that they like me and everybody else should be questioned about the views that they've got as we're trying to figure out good policy. We should look at, at actual facts, what's going on. Uh, we should be medical detectives. That's what you do in public health. Look for information from every source that you can get it. And that we have people who are not looking at how many people have been going to vape shops and quitting smoking. 
where they're not looking at what's happened to cigarette sales in Canada or the States or other countries, how much more rapidly they've gone down when vaping became available. They haven't looked at the, the countries that have managed to do very well at substitution, even though they had groups like that trying to fight it. You know, how did uh, Norway get rid of half of its smoking in a decade? How did Iceland get rid of 40% in just three years? How has Japan got rid of over 30% of its cigarette market in about three and a half years? I mean, why, is, why was the U.S., at least until the recent scares, seeing cigarette sales fall at about three times historic rates as vaping took off? Why do we see all these mirror image graphs? If you look at sales data as products from, from the vaping sector took off, cigarette sales fell. One goes up, the other goes down. That's substitution. Right. How do we work with that to say, how do we accelerate that rather than try to prevent it? How do we inform consumers? Because people can only make as good a decision as the information available to them allows. It is incredibly disturbing to me to, to meet people who have gone back to cigarette smoking who were vaping because of this sort of misinformation. That's, that's public health malpractice. I agree with all of that. And you ask a lot of questions on how do we do that. I put it back and I answer that by, go, by saying this stopping your friends at Physicians for Smoke-Free Canada. A, they're not physicians, <laughs> are they? You said they're not. And, and they're certainly not keen on smoke-free. They're promoting smoking by getting rid of vaping or trying right. to get rid of vaping. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about how do we stop them? Too. How do we stop them? For all of our thousands of listeners and viewers out there, let's talk tactics, let's sure. talk activism. How, well, do, how do you suggest because you're telling me that this organization's a fraud. Well, I think I mean, people can take whatever positions they want to do. Public policy, I've often seen as like a football. And if you're sitting in the stands, being concerned that it keeps moving in the direction you don't want it to go, you gotta think, should I be one of the people on the field pushing it in the other direction? Because you got all these abstinence-only groups out there trying to shape policy at Health Canada trying to do things at a provincial level, trying, trying to prevent people having access to low-risk alternatives, trying to prevent people from getting accurate information. That's a big team trying to push that football in one direction. Get so, on the field. I Get agree. on the field. Start getting involved. Be, you know, take Health Canada seriously. Question who they're taking advice from. You know, who are their expert advisors? What are their conflicts? You know, are, are some of those people people who shouldn't be there at all? Who are the people they might be listening to? Which politicians might be listening to some of the stuff that the CBC or Physicians for Smoke-Free Canada are, are saying? Counter it. Give well, I don't, I don't understand how they can have that name. I mean, yeah. that, how are they a nonprofit? How is the government giving this organization money uh, well, in from the health from Health Canada or anything that's health related? Okay, so you don't need to give me their names, but I I am asking you. To, to give us some information in terms of what's their background? Like, were they car salesmen? <laughs> no, well, I mean, one um, uh, actually was a very good person at Health Canada. I worked with him uh, for years. We helped get, you know, helped push legislation through in the 1980s. Um, I, and, you know, these are people I, I used to respect. I think they, they lost their way for reasons that are probably ideological. Uh, they're anti-business, anti-capitalist. They're probably very upset that somebody might make money off getting people off cigarettes. 
uh, I think, and I'm, I'm because they're they're not willing to talk about it, uh, uh, which which I think is hugely problematic if you're trying to develop policy uh, and you're trying to influence what's going on in Canada and you're not willing to sit down and try to explain the justification for what you're doing. But for people who see capitalism itself as the problem, that's what they're fighting, and we see it with other NGOs. They're not being pragmatic. They've got an overall ideological goal, and it gets in the way. So if they say well, yes, if, if we manage to prevent that 40,000 deaths a year from cigarette smoking in Canada with products that had little or no risk, but somebody made money selling those products, you know, that's the problem. So they're well, leftists. That that is, all you, had to do, you, you already had us there. You explained it. They're leftists, and that's fine. I mean, you know, I've got no problem putting the words to it if this is an ideological issue. They hate capitalism. They don't like the market. You know, they want to control people and what they do. They're leftists. I mean, if they want to say I'm being political yep. by doing that, that's wrong. I mean, they're, they're, if you act red, you're red. You know, if you act blue, you're blue. That, that, yeah. that's, that's the importance of discourse, Brent. I mean, I, I find it very disturbing that we have people who will, you know, take very strong positions and refuse to discuss where they're coming from, what they're doing. Right. Uh, the people who, for instance, attack Public Health England on its positions, but refuse to actually sit down and discuss it. Refuse to say, you know, I can put you in touch with the people who write those reports. They can explain where it comes from. I can put you in touch with people who can explain why the CBC coverage is completely mixed up on the science. It just misses key, key things. You know, it's incredibly biased. I can tell you who the scientists are you can talk to. You might decide that they don't have any credibility and I don't. You might decide that we have credibility and they don't. That's how political discourse is supposed to work. You need to have that discussion. And if you try to shut down the discussion, if you try to, to, to simply scare people rather than inform people, you know, that's not getting us to where we need to be if we're trying to get decent policy in this country. I totally agree and uh, completely. And so my concern is, is that Health Canada's got all these, you know, people in their ears right now. And the design about uh, of all of this pressure is designed to back them into a corner. So. Let me just kind of put that out there, and, and this should come as no surprise. And we're going to play some video here in a second, so I'm, I'm kind of setting that up for this. But um, so in uh, Kelly Crow's CBC piece here, um, so let me just quickly make sure that I hit the points. A couple of things that's going on in this major piece that she's done here is, is it's fully pressuring Health Canada, setting the, a complex, it's a simple but complex narrative designed to push Health Canada um, into the corner. I mean, that's why this series is called Vape Fail. What mm -hmm. has failed? The regulatory measures around vaping is what's failed. So the underlying theme or the overarching on top theme of, of this whole series, Vape Fail, uh, is Health Canada's failure. And that's that's the point. And these, this is constructed. I don't believe that her as a reporter just came up with this. I believe that there are outside influencers coming from NGOs, public health, whether that be cancer, physicians for smoke-free kids, or, or smoke-free, uh, smoke, uh, smoke what is it, is it kids? I got kids. No, Canada. Canada, that's kids. right, yeah. So, um, and then, you know, it's funny, we have David Hammond's, uh, you know, in every single one of these, and I know he's certainly at the epicenter of a lot of uh, a lot of the strategy. Uh, how how could he not be um, a part of a, a lot of this strategy that's going on? And so, you know, 
Um, I, I don't want to get into everything here. So yeah. here's one of the things that just struck me crazy was Health Canada advises Canadians not to use e-cigarettes. This is a uh, screen cap of a March 27th, 2009 yeah. Health Canada uh, post. There is no way on God's green earth did the CBC have this shot on file. It's just, it's impossible yeah. that they had this on file. And the same with the Globe and Mail's coverage that Carly Weeks did, who I'm going to get you to speak about in a second, that there was so much detail for one reporter, 5,000-word story. There was you know, at least 100 different little storylines and, and bits and tons of research. I mean, it just had the making of dossier all over it. And I'm not, you know, I'm not being glib and trying to like pull yeah. the Trump dossier thing here. I, I mean that that, that definitely uh, cancer, heart, lung, uh, and so forth. They've got packages put together. They're the ones that are monitoring the advertising. They're the ones clipping uh, the the advertising and taking screenshots on the web. They're the ones bringing it to CBC and to Globe and Mail and working with them on the coverage. And yet that their influence on this reporting is not known to the public. And even if it was, it's easy to explain. Nobody would care because, of course, they're benevolent. I don't know. Uh, I mean, you're the journalist, Brent. Uh, I think, you know, hopefully there's other journalists who are watching this who, who start to question what's going on, look for some balance, uh, wonder whether maybe uh, journalists were influenced by, uh, by somebody. I mean, I don't think it really matters who influenced it. You just ended up with, with bad journalism. You ended up with biased studies or biased stories uh, that distort the, the public discussion. It's shaping the behavior of Canadians in ways that makes it more likely they're going to die. Uh, it makes it harder to do good public policy. Uh, and it destroys the faith that many people, sh I would hope, should have in our major media outlets, our government institutions, and hopefully even some of our NGOs. You know, we need these sorts of institutions for democracy to function well, but they need to, to be giving value for the trust we put in them. And we need to rebuild that trust, and we're seeing it being torn down. And that, that's a huge, huge concern of mine. I know that's true. So, um, and uh, we're doing good. And thank you so much for your time today, David. I mean, we're certainly, we're, we're making good use of it, I'm, I, I know. Uh, the response has been fantastic uh, on online here. So let me just jump real fast here through this huge article. Um, <laughs> All right, and then, oh, isn't that great? They always like doing those kinds of shots. All right, big tobacco is also big vape. That's uh, part of vape fail. Wonderful, nice little logo. And then this is uh, Health Canada helps market e-cigarettes. Meanwhile, Health Canada officials were working on ways to promote vaping to smokers by developing a series of health claims the industry could use to market the products. In early September 2018, Health Canada sent a letter inviting... Yeah? Sorry? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the idea that they're trying to position Health Canada as somehow being out there marketing vaping products, Health Canada has not been very good on harm reduction. You know, they have legislation that made it illegal for people to tell the truth about relative risk because of pressure from some of these abstinence-only groups. And when you look at this, I mean, you know, the, these comments about saying, you know, when I saw this, it got me really upset. 
what are you getting upset about? You're getting upset about Health Canada saying, how about we allow people to give truthful information to smokers about things they could do to save their lives? How does that cause anybody to go apoplectic? So if you're really concerned that any of these things aren't true, that's what the consultation's for. But that's why Health Canada was doing research to find people needed this information. It isn't that people have misunderstood this and believe that vaping is somehow way safer than what it is. All the data we see shows us that people believe vaping is way more hazardous than what the facts indicate that it is. Totally. And, and you and I, and you, David, you and I both get that, right? But what I'm, what I'm hoping you can comment on here is the strategy to push Health Canada. Like, let's, I mean, we both get that, like, for sure, yeah. and, you know. And our audience knows the message that you're trying to put out there, yeah. right? So that that is clear. I, well, I don't want... Hopefully, some of your uh, your uh, the the enemies of, of harm reduction also are watching your your show. Sure. Uh, I hope it, I hope it dis disturbs them. But you know the idea that it's it's a good policy to deny people accurate information that could save their lives. That people get upset that you would be wanting to do this when we can see that they're misinformed now and they say we do want this information. And when we have a law that says you're not allowed to tell them, you're not allowed to tell them about the differences in risk between tobacco products at all. So if we decided to bring Swedish snooze, which is a tiny fraction of the risk of cigarettes into Canada and sell it and tell smokers the truth in order to save their lives, we could go to jail under that law. So don't tell me this law is like hugely supportive of harm reduction. You know, it, it has a lot of major flaws that made it much harder to do things that would be good for public health because of the influence of the abstinence-only groups uh, when it was being formed. But it says, but we will allow, we, we, we won't allow you to say anything about the relative risk of vaping compared to cigarettes except what we allow you to say. So let's, well, so let's, let's just stop there for a second because let's just say we, I, we agree uh, that that the law is already there and it's so strong and it and infringes on free speech and you've already yeah. got what you needed between everything the, the, that's in the law, the TVPA, you got what you needed. But my yeah. argument here is, David, is that they did get what they needed and they're not happy with it. It's not enough. They want more. And they're well, willing to go outside of the regulatory process. They're willing to spin stories, to attach deaths on one issue to another. They're willing to shut down the vaping industry in Canada. They're willing to force people back to smoking, all because they didn't get enough in the regulatory process during the TVPA. And they want more. And they don't well, care how much yeah, it costs and, Canadians to get it. And, and that's why we, we really need dialogue. We need to have debate. We need to have balanced journalism to raise the question of what are the goals here? What should we be trying to accomplish as a country? We do have some problems and we can try to find ways to address it. But isn't it a problem if you're saying, well, we'll just accept that another million Canadians are gonna die in the next 25 years as a direct result of cigarette smoking because we refuse to give them safer alternatives when we know we could. You know, is that not a problem? You know, how, how do we balance that with the other things that we're concerned about. So yeah, you know, if, if we've got issues with young people vaping, how do we deal with that? How have other places dealt with that? How do you avoid 
you know, leading to the deaths of their parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, coaches, teachers, etc., because of a concern that they might be vaping. How do we control the youth usage? What's caused that problem? Let's rationally address something like that rather than use it as a way to attack the overall move to a less hazardous product and the ability of people to get totally off nicotine. Because we have the ability to do that if we're willing to use the sort of uh, technology that we now have available, if we're willing to give truthful information to consumers, if we're willing to empower rather than punish smokers. You know, if, if we're willing to do the basic things that good public health practice tells us we should do, we can accomplish amazing things. Let's have that discussion. You don't get that sort of discussion when you're having a moral panic. You oh, get that sort of discussion when you say, let's, let's have a rational, science-based debate about where should we be going as a country to deal with this problem. And I totally agree. I thought we already had that rational scientific debate. That was in the years leading up to uh, the passing of the TVPA. That was when the federal liberal government, this government that was just returned to power, they're the ones that made vaping legal. They are the ones that put the law in place. They're the ones that walked it through government. It went through parliament. It went through the Senate. It went through all the committees. Health Canada's very own science uh, people reviewed it. When I interviewed um, uh, James Van Loon, Director General of the Tobacco mm -hmm. Control Directorate, earlier this year, and we were talking about the science and the epidemic of teen vaping and everything else, and he was mentioning that they relied a lot on the U.S. studies, and then he corrected himself, and he said, well, but wait a minute. We also have our own science people here mm -hmm. at Health Canada. They review the science, too, as well. So clearly, and then with the science, science Advisory Board, uh, that was put together uh, as a part of the TVPA. Um, so what's happening here is a push to push Health Canada into a position where it will admit that it made a mistake with its review of the science or, or didn't quite catch it all, right? Or didn't quite foresee all of the unintended consequences of making vaping legal. And so, you know, the progressives that are out there that are pushing this, whether they're in the media or, you know, the nonprofits or other politicians, they're closing ranks now. And they're basically saying to Health Canada, you made a promise to us when you allowed adult access to vaping products to become legal, you made a promise to us that if this affected the kids, you would take action, you would change, you would pull back, you would do something, whatever that was said in the room. And we know publicly that something was said because it's what Susie McDonald, then director of the Tobacco Control Directorate, told myself, RegWatch, three years ago when we interviewed her in Ottawa, and we're gonna play a, a bit of that in a second. And Carly Weeks's piece in the Globe and Mail started with that right up at the top, right at the start of her piece, her 5,000 word piece, she referenced the deal that was made, that that the the you know the deal Health Canada made with Canadians, right, kind of thing, and so this is where the real problem lies. And and if you are interested in keeping access to vaping products open to adults in Canada, you need to understand that what's happening right now is is a total closing ranks process on Health Canada to force them to pull that clause and go, yep. We made a mistake. Yep, the problem with kids is is way worse than we thought it was going to be. Yep, we're going to have to do blah. And what is blah going to be? 
And that's what the industry, that's what vapors need to be concerned about right now, because this isn't election time. This is all happening in the back rooms. There's no open hearings are going to happen from this. Yeah, uh, Brent, I mean, it, it's, you know, all policies end up, end up being, you know, trade-offs, risks and benefits. And there is the concern about young people vaping. There's also the concern about adults in very large numbers dying from cigarette smoking. Uh, how do we do the trade-off that's been discussed of how do you prevent young people from taking up vaping and moving on to cigarette smoking, because that's where the real harm would be, uh, and how do you help at the same time as many smokers as possible to get off combustion-based delivery, because that's what's killing them. Uh, and we've seen places like the UK that have, but we've got legislation here that's saying the one thing that the people who smoke cigarettes most want to know is about relative risk. They want to know, you know, will this save my life? Will this reduce my risk? What they're getting is a whole lot of misinformation. And we've got legislation that hasn't allowed them to be given truthful information. Well, I'd say the answer there isn't to say clamp down further on anything that might help adults switch to vaping. It's focus laser-like on measures that will rationally deal with uptake among young people because the UK seems to have done it pretty well. Japan's done it very well. Uh, I mean, what, what can we learn there? Uh, the people in the UK laugh at North America or get disgusted at North America saying, it's your abstinence only people who've done the biggest job of promoting vaping among young people. Look at their ads, all the things they've done to make vaping more attractive to young people. This is what I encountered with cigarette smoking when I got involved in the 1980s. We had all these anti-smoking groups who were screaming about young people smoking, which was really effective at promoting smoking to young people. And 42% of 15 to 19-year-olds were daily smokers. Rational policy reduced that without sacrificing adults. That actually benefited adults at the same time. Right. We can be doing these things to say, what if we really promoted truthful information about the role of vaping in helping Canadians who smoke cigarettes to get off those cigarettes? What if that was the image you saw, like in the UK, this is a product people use to get off smoking, not all the ads and people saying this is a product being used by young people. You know, those are very different messages. How do we tailor this? How do we start giving <laughs> truthful information? I, I agree with you, David. In a, in a utopian world, how do we tailor this? Right now, they are going in for the kill. You're talking like that there's still an option on the table that this is a harm reduction tool and that Canada is going to be welcoming to it. More Canadians believe that vaping is as deadly or deadlier than smoking than they did ever, right? Yeah. And so... Yeah, the, the misinformation has, has been extraordinary and extraordinarily successful. Yeah. I have not given up on rationality. We have seen this issue come up many times. So, you know, if we talk, and I know I should never take my face off the camera, but Ellen Brent's book on the history of venereal disease saying there's a persistent tension between a rational scientific program and a moralistic approach. Yeah. That's what we dealt with when we were dealing with sexual health. It's what we dealt with in dealing with alcohol. It's what we've dealt with with illicit drugs. It's what we're dealing with with nicotine. It is the same issue. And we've managed to deal with it in the past. You know, we managed to find ways that we can have safer automobiles, 
without panicking about what if this causes somebody to drive more recklessly. I got, I got Those it, I arguments got were made. Yeah, the, the opponents in this case are on the left. That's what's different. Like a lot of the other cases when it comes to, you know, needle exchange and sex and all that kind of stuff, the opponents appear to be on the right. And and they're those are good boogeymen and and they don't own the media. The media is owned by the left, right? Progressive left. Bureaucracy is owned by the progressive left. So it's a little easier to fight those battles. But what do you do with the hypocrisy of the harm reduction? Because there's hypocrisy there. The very people that support the harm reduction everywhere else want to see smokers die, right? And and they're and they're they just they're just maniacal about it. But let, let's just I, no, I, well, I, I I wouldn't be that uh, uh, that cut and dry on it. I mean, there's a lot of people with very strong social conservative views that think that, you know, smokers ought to just quit or die. No, uh, I know. I get that. Yeah, but, so, but, I mean, it goes across the political spectrum, and, th and that's why we need the discussion. That's why we need to have people be, you know, rational about this to say, what is actually a, a, a moralistic approach that we can take that's actually ethical? You know, that should we be condemning people to death because we don't like what they're doing? We've addressed that on other issues. So, and uh, so regardless how, of where somebody's coming from, I, I find it really hard to believe we've got Canadians who really think it's a good idea to cause huge numbers of premature deaths. Well, they seem to I be. Think, <laughs> well, and let, let's, not, let's not attribute huge insights and intelligence to them unnecessarily. Uh, as the saying goes, never attribute to malice that which can be adequately explained by stupidity, Brent. Oh, I love that. And you've brought that up. I love that saying. So look, okay, so let's let me put a fine point to this because I you know, we always get contentious towards the end of our interviews <laughs> because because I'm trying to force you into you keep seeing rationality and reason and you keep going back to there, but but there's never any answers in there, David. So, so that's why I get well, frustrated. I wait, wait. So I think those are the answers, Brent. Well, no, no, it's not. I, I've got a question for you. Okay. How how do you get Neil Collingshaw? research director from Physicians for Smoke-Free Canada, how do you get him to listen? How do you get, how do you get a dialogue, a rational dialogue going on with him? Because if you can't, if your approach isn't going to work with him, then we need to find a new approach, David. Well, that's where we have traditionally had things like courts where vapors win, because once you start forcing people to appear and give their views under cross-examination, uh, you know, that's why we've managed to throw out bad laws against uh, vaping and other risk reduction products, uh, not only in Canada, but globally. Uh, that's why we should be having parliamentary hearings. That's, that's what uh, we, we've had with, with health committees in the past, bring people in, get them to give their views, hear the other side, do the stuff some, re some journalists aren't wanting to do, get journalists to take time to do real investigative journalism to look at the different sides, to force people to disclose what their views are, what their conflicts are. Uh, th that's, you know, the seeking of truth. And I don't think we should allow it to die. And, and that's, that's what's happening. Right? So we have institutions, whether it be courts, parliamentary hearings, investigative journalists, we have ways of trying to seek truth, trying to understand what's going on, informing the public. And I think the public really appreciates it when that sort of thing happens. That has caused huge, huge advances in, 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 in human life and well-being. It's been extraordinarily what, what we've managed to do by saying, let's use reason, let's use science, we'll use humanism, we'll care about people, we'll seek truth. And, and you know, that's why 
Our life yeah. expectancy soared. That's why we're so much richer. That's David, why I, I hear you. You're pitching an enlightenment. So you're making the enlightenment argument. It's yeah. Postmodernists hate the enlightenment, and, and the the ideology that's grabbed everybody is a real is a real anti enlightenment argument. You well, know, then let let them be forced into an open enlightenment like debate to give their reasons why they think the enlightenment's a bad idea. So I need there was a debate with them. Sure, but they don't want to debate you. So no, no, they so won't that's debate. why you need to force it, whether by courts, parliamentary hearings, uh, true investigative journalists. Right. You know, you force them. Uh, you know, to do. We did this to tobacco companies when they refused to debate. You know, to say set up something with an empty chair, or when they would claim that you know we don't really know. You know, because that's what we're hearing on the vaping now. We don't really know that it's 95% less hazardous. Cigarette company shills used to say, well, we can't really accept that it's killing 40,000 Canadians a year. We don't believe that. And I'd say, so what number do you believe? You know, that, do you accept that's, the that's the irony here is the anti-vaping yeah. groups are... 10, so the people who say they don't accept 95%, give me a, ro a rational basis for why you believe it's a different number and tell me what your number is. Give me the basis for that. So you, clearly, you clearly haven't spent more than 30 minutes with, uh, or 30 seconds with Stanton Glantz, right? Because, you know, oh, he's I, just... Oh, no, I spent lots of time. I with, know, he's a, you know, he's just a, you're not getting through there. He can be charming no. about it. Well, right? he, he's got totally different issues going on. And uh, yeah. uh, so he, he's very entertaining, but I stopped paying any attention to his science a very long time ago. Oh, oh totally. So, David, so um, mindful of time, I've got a six-minute clip here, which is important for us to play, and then we'll just spend a couple of minutes after talking about it and wrapping up, okay? And thank you okay. so much for the time. So uh, for my audience here, this is a clip of the second part of a two-part episode, Striking Balance, uh, with Susie McDonald, who was then director of the Tobacco Control Directorate at Health Canada, which is the top spot uh, on the whole the whole department that, you know, handles tobacco, which is, you know, obviously a massive, massive uh, department for Health Canada. She ended up leaving uh, and James Van Loon took her place and she took a step up and reported directly to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and walked through the whole legalization of cannabis. So this is the top person. And um, she had some this interesting things to say uh, with regard to nicotine with regard to allowing adults to have access to an illegal product um, and so forth. So I'm just teasing a couple of things there for you. Liz. To a cleaner source of nicotine, uh, very likely, as we already talked about, would expose them to fewer harms. So it would be incorrect for somebody to believe that Health Canada is saying that adults aren't allowed to use nicotine or that you're advocating complete abstinence from nicotine? I, mean, I think in an ideal world you wouldn't use nicotine unless you had Same with coffee though, in an ideal world. In an ideal world you wouldn't use nicotine unless you had to and so really what we're trying to do here is make, make available a product to people who are already smokers or tobacco users um, in a cleaner form. So what if an adult who never was a smoker decided to pick up vaping because they wanted to enjoy recreational nicotine? Again, ideally we'd be protecting both smokers and others. People will say that's puritanical. Well, the, it's, the reality is, is that um, vaping products aren't without risk. There are some risks associated with vaping products. And so ideally people would just be breathing clean air and not using nicotine. And we are the Department of Health and so we advocate 
breathing clean air and not using nicotine. There's some logic to that. Let's move to flavors for the moment. It's a very contentious issue. It's it, For many vapors, it's to the heart of the issue. It's the, well, it's it was so much the enjoyment it comes out of the flavors. The variety and mix of flavors is goes to the success of vaping, in both individually and recognized by researchers as being a critical component to the success of vaping for people who are trying to quit smoking. But it's an issue for legislators and regulators, is it not? Well, I think I'd come back to that same issue around balance. How do we balance the needs of current smokers um, that are using vaping products and where flavors might make that product more palatable to them? along with the needs of protecting youth from potential nicotine addiction or from trying something because it has a candy flavor, for example. And so what we've tried to do is create a very balanced approach. We've recognized that there is likely a need to have some flavors, that that's part of the vaping experience. But at the same time, with over 7,000 flavors on the market, um, we are or the legislation is proposing that we uh, prohibit the promotion of flavors that are specifically appealing to youth, including candy, desserts. The argument's made though that once, so once it's banned for people that are under 19, isn't that enough? Well, I think that what we find is that, in fact, um, evidence shows that that's not enough in the world of tobacco control, and we're trying to take a proactive approach to make sure that we are protecting kids from, again, becoming addicted to nicotine. We do know that nicotine is more harmful for youth than it is for adults, and so in taking that approach, we're, we're creating a very balanced environment where adults can access flavors. We understand that fruit flavor is the most uh, popular flavor amongst adults, it's still available on the market, um, but we're trying to really restrict the promotion, particularly as I said, you see all kinds of things out there around candy flavors or other things, making sure that's not appealing to youth. Let me ask you the same question I ask everybody. It seems that regulators are throwing adult smokers under the bus for the sake of protecting youth. So I think that, again, what we're doing here really is um, allowing adult smokers access to an illegal product, a currently illegal product, making that legal to them. I think that that um, ensures that they're able to use the product effectively um, and it really is important to protect our kids. Nobody wants their child to smoke. Do you believe it's a gateway? I think the evidence on gateway, like everything else in e-cigarettes, continues to evolve. Um, there's evidence that suggests it is, there's evidence that suggests it's not. What we want to do is make sure that, it is, uh, that we're putting in place the appropriate regulations so that it is not a gateway. So that's, uh, that's uh, good enough. Um, what do you think? I, I know that you saw that uh, back when we did it. Yeah. Seeing it now again, three years later, and, and in the context of our discussion, what do you think? Well, I, I think we've, we've got the same issue. I, I think she, um, uh, uh, Susie summed, summed it up very well that uh, it's you know, risk-benefit. We're trying to get the benefits we can while minimizing the risks. It's what we do on policy you know, all the time uh, if we're doing policy well. Uh, and I, I think it's incumbent upon us to try to do policy well because there's so many lives that are that are on the line. Uh, you know, you think of how many people have died from cigarette smoking since, say, 1989, when we had a law brought into force that did have a harm reduction section, uh, and that law was, you know, d destroyed by cigarette companies in a legal challenge. What would have happened had we had that? You know, might we have got rid of smoking before the year 2000? You know, we'd be talking about this in historical context. We have that opportunity again if we can get this right. And, and that requires something other than a moral panic. That requires people to be giving good information because you need good information to do good policy. You need to have good science. 
and we can get there. I'm still optimistic that we can do it. But I also believe that regardless of what we're going to see from the moralists or from the regulators, you know, there, there's something about new technology, uh, Brent, that was captured in a book called uh, Big Bang Disruption by Downs and Noons, which is that because of the internet for getting information, social media for sharing it, because of the number of things passing around the world, like the, the, the millions upon millions of packages at any given time, you, you can slow down new technology. And nothing can slow it more than regulation, no regulation more than health regulation, but even health regulation can't stop it. If consumers want these things, they're going to get them. We're going to slow it, but we're not going to stop it. Given that you can't stop it, how do you direct it? Because the good that we can accomplish from this is phenomenal. The harm that we do if we try to force it into an illicit market is enormous. The, the harm we do by not giving people enough information to empower them to make better personal health decisions, I mean, that's, that's a huge loss. Uh, the harm in using use among young people as an excuse to take life-saving products away from their parents and grandparents is, I mean, just uh, c completely missing the point of what we try to do in dealing with risk and benefits and, and rational analysis. Let's have the people who are screaming about young people start focusing on, let's look at what we can do to reduce use among young people while empowering use among the adults who are smoking. And let's not use young people as a way to attack adults and get a ban on the products and get an abstinence only view. You know, that's simply not rational. You know, yeah, David, let's they, see they, what they, we can do. I hear you, but the issue I think, and this is what I, I really truly believe based on the comments and the actions that have been taking place here, is that if they will not, they will never promote uh, vaping products with adults because that normalizes vaping products. Tobacco control knows that the uh, biggest influence on a young person when it comes to them picking up a habit, a nicotine habit, is their parents. Yeah. Uh, their parents, their uncles, their aunts, uh, and so forth. Their coaches so, or teachers, if they smoke cigarettes, the, uh, the young right. person's more likely to do it. Right. And most of those people, the vast majority are saying, I wish I didn't smoke. We have something that could help them do that. I got it, but but they're not thinking about that. They're thinking about the kids, and they're going, yep. if, if all of the adults are vaping, then the kids will end up vaping, regardless of whether or not they wait until they're 19. Like the whole point here is they're trying to eradicate nicotine use. And yeah. so, and so they, they're not wanting to promote vaping for adults because that will promote it to kids. They know that because they know that it's those social peer networks, not the kids network, though that's important, but the actual adults uh, in their life. If they're smoking, there's a higher chance the kids are gonna smoke. If they're vaping, there's a higher chance the kids are going to vape. And I don't even think the vaping industry has properly grasped this issue because it really is the issue for tobacco control in, in, their, in, in, their, in their reaction to vaping is because they know better than anybody else that if adults, if, if it turns into this huge, great adult market, then there will be, there you won't be able to control the fact that, that young people will, will, will grow up and mature into vaping? Well, I mean, we did a wonderful job of reducing cigarette smoking among young people. Uh, as vaping has become more common in many places, such as the United States, cigarette smoking among young people has plummeted 
Uh, that's a huge health uh, breakthrough. But we've seen that we can reduce cigarette smoking among young people even more rapidly than among adults if we use rational policies. We've done it. You know, we can I, I, get, I get that. They don't want another generation of kids addicted to nicotine, regardless yeah. if it's from a safer delivery system. They, people need to start listening to them exactly what they're saying. What they're saying is they will not stand by and have another generation addicted to nicotine. Right. And so so that means no promotion of vaping products to adults. It means demonize vaping products like completely. Right. Because they can't you can't you can't afford to have it to be something that's OK for adults to do, because if it's OK for adults to do it, then the kids will do it. And then you will get another generation of, of kids addicted to nicotine. And. Yeah, I'll, I'll give another pitch for rationality because early in my career, you know, I really believed it was possible we were just going to get rid of nicotine, uh, and abstinence was, was something that that we could we could push for. Um, which, which, you know, if, if people look back at some of the things I was saying in the the eighties, you 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 might might be surprised. I had a good friend who was um, a medical internist, very very highly regarded, working in this field. Um, southern gentleman from uh, uh, Georgia, who rather than saying, Sweeney, you're completely nuts, said, you know, you ought to come to some of the scientific conferences, people dealing with addictions. They, they could really benefit from hearing what you have to say. And I did. And I benefited tremendously from hearing what they had to say, to say, why were the cessation rates for people trying to quit smoking so low? What was the neuroscience that we knew about nicotine? What were the roles of nicotine in people self-administering in order to self-medicate to deal some condition that they've got? Why do we have such sky-high rates of nicotine use among people with certain psychiatric conditions or various other things, uh, attention deficit disorder, schizophrenia? Uh, there's a good neuroscience basis to that. And when I started looking at those facts, I changed what I was doing. And for people who say we can just get them to stop, you know, are ignoring not, not just the basic humanity, they're ignoring the science behind why this is happening. People do things to alter their consciousness. Part of having consciousness is we do it. And, and what we should be doing in public health is finding ways to make that less likely to kill them, to harm the people around them, to injure them, uh, because they're going to do it. And whether it's me going out and riding a bicycle in December in sub-freezing weather to get endorphins, or somebody sticking a needle into their arm, or somebody wanting to have a cup of coffee in the morning, somebody looking at a beautiful piece of art, it's all seeking to alter our consciousness. Let's accept that. How do we find ways that people can do that with something like nicotine, if that's what they want to do or need to do, without dying as a result? And we've managed to accomplish that sort of thing on a whole lot of issues this is actually a pretty easy one to deal with if we're willing to be rational and it's going to happen it would just be nice to happen sooner rather than later so that people like you and me do not spend as much time on palliative care boards with friends who are dying True, there's that, and I also have to spend more time fighting the climate change lunatics. But anyhow, <laughs> uh, we'll leave it at that. David, look, I really want to thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. What a great conversation. We always get into it, and I can't thank you enough for that. Oh, we'll have to come back and talk about climate change sometime. So, all right. <laughs>
Absolutely. Okay. All right. Thanks, David. Just stay just stay there while I do uh, close here. Well, that's it for this edition of RegWatch, everybody. Before you head off, please do go to support.regulatorwatch.com. Take a look around. See if you can possibly maybe dig into that wallet and find a few dollars and toss them our way. You'll feel way better for it if you do do that. And while you're online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and please follow us on Twitter. For RegulatorWatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.